Last week we talked about the, the fact you have to make a decision. And all of us made many, many decisions this week. I hope you made good decisions. I hope they were honoring to the Lord. I hope you were conscious of the fact that there's two ways, a narrow way and the broad way. We also recognized last week that this is the uh, summary of the, um, of the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is giving. And all good messages always have an appeal for a response. And that's really what Jesus is doing here. He asked last week, make a choice, the broad way or the narrow way, the way that leads to life or the way that leads to death. And he goes on to say, even this week in the next message and the following message has to do still with this conclusion that's taking place. Today, he warns us, having exhorted us to choose the narrow way, he says, be very, very careful because there are false prophets that are out there that will lead you astray. In fact, lead you from truth and lead you from the source of uh, salvation, Jesus Christ himself. And we also learn that not only can we be deceived by others, but the following week after that, or when we address this passage again, we also can understand that we ourselves can be deceived. We deceive ourselves. Some will say that, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And then the last message that will come about in this study in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount will be, there's two foundations, again, a good one and a bad one. And he's asking us, make a choice, make a choice. Life is always characterized by making the choice of what we're going to do. But today we look at the issue of uh, false prophets. I was hiking on Friday with a group of men, and I often practice part of my message on them as I'm going. That may be why I hike a lot alone now these days, but... (laughs) But not really, no, we hiked together. And, and I asked them when we were there and a little moment paused there, and I said, uh, and I'm speaking on false prophets on Sunday. Can you think of, uh, in our lifetime, any false prophet that comes to mind? One of the men spoke up immediately. Yes, Jim Jones. Now, Jim Jones may not mean anything to some of the younger generation, But in the 1970s, he was, in fact, a false prophet. Well, this man went on to explain to me that actually he was in that community of the uh, People's Temple, and he uh, he knew part of the Jones family. He knew uh, the daughter that had been adopted. One of his siblings is still in contact with one of Jim Jones's children, even as of this day. In fact, he shared the story that when his father died, the people's temple, I'll say a little bit more about that, but the people's temple came immediately to his mother and said, we want to care for you. So it was a very good and gracious thing. Well, as this young man, a teenager at that time, got exposed to Jim Jones, he said to his mother, now he was saved when he was eight years old, and uh, this was, it had been about 16 years of age. He said, Mom, there's something not right about that man. I don't know what it is, 
but there's something that's not right. Now, I believe this man has the gift of discernment. Others may not have recognized that, but he did. He sensed that something's not right here. Now, if you're not acquainted with uh, Jim Jones, or if this doesn't ring a bell, uh, Jonestown in Guyana, uh, that was um, where over 900 people in November of 1978 lost their lives. Uh, Either there was a poisonous substance that was given to the younger children and other older folks, but they all committed mass suicide under the leadership of this false prophet, uh, Jim Jones. He was an amazing man in the sense that um, he had even Christian credentials and he was a benevolent, kind person, but there were things that began to manifest themselves, which is always true of false prophets. There was a book that was written, John MacArthur makes mention of this in his, in his uh, book, Commentary on Matthew, but he's quoting from this book called Deceived. Now, again, we're talking about this man, Jim Jones, who is a perfect illustration from we're talking about a false prophet. We see him in his character, his teaching, his lifestyle, and his approach as being the characteristics of a false prophet. Well, in this book called Deceived that came out soon after that, this writer set out to try to figure out what was the phenomenon that was going on down there in Jonestown? Why would so many people be so deceived, and could there not have been a voice that would speak out against that? So it was confusing confusing to him, and he, he really set out to try to unravel that mystery that was going on in relationship to all that happened there. He wanted to look at some of the statistics of those people who were part of that following that was there and, and try to see what was so attractive about this Reverend Jones in that process. So he believed that and this is what he was trying to settle in the first part of the book, he he believed that if there had been an adequate amount of Christian influence in these people's lives, they would have seen clearly that this man was a false prophet and would have moved away from him. So that's really what he set out to do. Now, of course, he couldn't interview any of the 900-plus people that died, but he did interview some of the people that had left the cult, And he wanted to know what was their background and what was their training. One of the people that he looks at was, had been a a follower of his. I'll give his name here. He said, um, what what he concludes is he found, however, that the Christian truth as children, in fact, uh, did not prove to be training enough to help them discern what was going on. He had a long interview with this Tim Stowen. And uh, the first questions he was asking was along this line. And Tim was once the second most powerful man in the people's temple. Tim was a, had a law degree from Stanford University, served as the assistant district attorney in, from San Francisco until he resigned to join Jim Jones in Jonestown in 1977. Tim defected from the cult. That would have been the following year while he was down there. He defected from the cult and worked tirelessly until the awful Saturday on November to get his son, John Victor, age six, from, uh, out, away from Jones and the jungle. According to eyewitness accounts, little John John was found dead beside Jim Jones's body. 
Here's his testimony, he says. I was raised in a Christian home. My parents were fundamentalists, members of the General Association of Regular Baptists, the GARB, G-A-R-B. I went to Sunday school and college all of my young life. I attended Wheaton College, a leading, and of course we know of that school, a leading evangelical Christian college in Illinois there. And he says, I was involved with student leadership there. When I moved to California, he goes on to say, I joined and attended regularly the First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley. For two years, I was the president of their Corinthians, a business and professional group of young people. I admired and respected their evangelical yet social concern for pastoral staff. A concern, pastoral staff. In other words, the staff was concerned about the social needs as well. I also attended First Presbyterians and the People's Temple until I joined Jim Jones's staff. So he joined then the staff. Another man gives testimony. So I mean, you'll see the background there. He had lots of Christian exposure, lots of Christian understanding, but was, but was deceived. Another man was Gene Mills, another victim, had seven years a member of the temple, one of Jones's writers for him, and a member of the planting commission. And he said, I had attended or taught in my church's, in his background, in my church's Christian education program from my childhood. When I was 18 years old, I was the leader of the Pathfinder Club, which had over 50 kids in it. I had 22 adults working under me. I could answer any Bible question that you would throw at me. I knew the, the Bible backwards and forward. At one point in my life, the minister tried to send me to college to become a Bible worker, and I was very dedicated to the church. Wayne Patella, who was Jones's private bodyguard and driver, grew up in the Nazarene Sunday School. His wife and longtime member of the cult grew up in, the, in a charismatic church and attended Sunday School and church regularly. Another person, Bonnie Tillman, for six years a member of the temple, was the daughter of the Assemblies of God missionaries to Brazil, and attended Bethany College, a Lutheran school in Minnesota. Another person, Carolyn Moore, was president of her Methodist youth fellowship group, and she and her sister Annie were children of the Methodist minister, and both served as intimate Jones aides, and both died in Guyana. Now, that's just a sample that comes from the first few pages of this book that talks about who were these people that became followers, and why did they become followers? The writer of the book, Deceived, goes on to try to figure out what, what, was, that, what was it about Jim Jones that made people follow him? And one of the things is that he expressed, that he concluded, he knew how to inspire hope. Now, not hope in the right thing, but how to inspire hope. He was committed to people in need. He counseled prisoners and juvenile delinquents. He started a placement center for jobs. He opened rest homes, opened homes for those who were mentally challenged. He had a health clinic. He organized a vocational training center. He provided free legal aid. He founded a community center. He preached about God. He even claimed to cast out demons to do miracles and heal. But on the other hand, we find all the marks of a false prophet. He promoted himself through the use of celebrities, a very common vehicle for false prophets to gain credibility. He manipulated the press. He wanted only favorable stories to be out there about him. He played well up to the press in that sense. 
He pretended to be a Christian. He officiated in the Disciples of Christ Church, having been ordained by them in 1964. He used the language and the form of faith to gain his power. He used fundamental Pentecostal trappings and always spoke in biblical language. He had his people sing and give testimonies to how he had miraculously healed them. And uh, might add that he later found out that he always supposedly healing cancer was really a trick that he had put in the audience that they would actually, as if they were coughing up the, the cancer from their body, they were placed in the audience as fraud, and they would cough up only chicken parts that they had put in their mouth, and they would see that. He created a warm, loving, pseudo-Christian community without Christ. He demanded absolute and total loyalty. He replaced Jesus as the authority figure and went so far as to say that he was Jesus. He used the Bible, he quoted it often, but perverting it to his own end, and it goes on, some of the characteristics. Well, here's one of the things that we would see is a man who was a false prophet. We see some of the patterns that are there. So Jesus, in saying that there is a narrow way And the narrowness of that way, we discover, is only through Jesus. It's an exclusive way, no other name given among men, whereby you shall be saved. Only through the name of Jesus. Says, I'm concerned that uh, some of you will be deceived. And so we want to talk about that. You can follow along in your outline there, in in your bulletins, and we'll talk about this theme of false prophets lead you away from truth. This was true with Jim Jones. And, is the, and will lead you away from the source of salvation, Jesus Christ. Now, the fact of the matter is, there have always been false prophets. Satan himself is the first one that we have an example of that. If we read in Genesis, uh, we can read about his, um, that encounter that he had with Adam and Eve. And we'll notice some of the characteristics of Satan, a fallen angel, created being, but then how he is using his talents to manipulate Adam and Eve to move into sin. I'll read from Genesis uh, chapter 3, 1 to 7, and this is the fall of man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, now I want you to understand, he was crafty. There was some ingenuity about him. There was some cleverness about him. There was some methodology about him. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? A false prophet at some point will begin to challenge the word of God and even the authority of God. That's exactly what Satan is doing here. And the woman, and he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat, from, but from the fruit of this tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, now this is directly refuting what God had said. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Well, that was a lie and they did die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die, for God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. Challenges the truth of God. Now he's challenging 
the motive of God, the purity of his heart, that God does and wants good for you. And it's sad to me that we can distort the gospel, such as we see with Jim Jones, we can distort the gospel in such a way that it makes God not the benevolent, kind father that he is, and then that false prophet becomes the one who's more caring than even God himself. He says, for God knows that the day you eat of this, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is withholding from you. And you need this advantage. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took it from his and, uh, and ate. She gave also her to husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Destruction was in the path of that. We see that in the passage when Jesus is talking about, I want to warn you about false prophets because when they come in, in a deceptive mode, they are uh, they're going to do great destruction. They're like a wolf that will be ravenous in its nature. We also find a reference to this in Jeremiah 23, 16. Now this is uh, uh, the context for Jeremiah is, and Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And it was a very difficult job that God had called him to. And the job was that he had to speak against Jerusalem. He had to speak against Israel. He had to speak against God's chosen people. And the message that he had for them is that God is going to judge you. Now, there were false prophets that were raising up that uh, were false indeed. And they were saying just the opposite. No, no. This is not true. You're God's people. God's going to bless you. Don't listen to what Jeremiah is saying. Nobody else is saying that. And Jeremiah was alone in his proclamation. And there were a multitude of false prophets. And this is what God says in Jeremiah 23 and verse 16. He says, thus saith the Lord of hosts. God speaking here. Jeremiah quoting what God had said. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. Again, those are signs by which we can determine, is this a true or false prophet? They're not speaking God's words. They're speaking, now they were saying they were speaking God's word. That's why it's difficult to discern true and false prophets. You know, sometimes we have this idea that Satan is easy to spot. You know, he's going to come in in red flannel, underwear, carrying a pitchfork, horns on his head, and breathing fire. Nothing could be further from the truth. Now, he is destructive, and, but, uh, but the fact is he parades best, and his greatest desire, because we understand his ambition, was to be like God. We see that prophesied in Isaiah chapter 14, and he wanted to be like God. And so he's not going to go around in a direct contradiction. So he parades around as an angel of light. And by the way, all of his followers do that same thing, those who are false prophets. So here he says, so these prophets in the time of Jeremiah were saying, we're of God, we're speaking, and listen. And you know, here's the interesting thing. These prophets that were false were saying things that appealed to the ear of those who wanted to hear. They wanted to believe that they were a great nation. They wanted to believe that God would never judge them, even though God said, if you don't honor my way and word, I will judge you. 
And they wanted to believe that, and so they had a greater audience than Jeremiah did, in fact. In fact, we find Jesus in the time when he's talking about the end times in Matthew chapter 24, and questions were asked about the end times and so forth. In in Matthew 24, verse 11, he says, Jesus says, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. That's the word of Jesus. So we do know, as a matter of fact, false prophets do exist. And we do understand that Jesus is saying what he's saying in order that we could be alerted to the reality of something we should do here. When that word beware is used by Jesus here in Matthew 7, when he says beware, that word actually means to be drawn to a place of mental alertness whereby you will be able to make a proper decision. So if we're not, uh, if we're careless in our thinking, if we're careless in our understanding of the Word of God, if we're not discerning, if we're not willing to put forth the work, then there is a keen possibility we're going to be deceived and we will not discern that there's a false prophet there. Beware, he says, be mentally alert To such a degree, you can draw a conclusion and take action against them. So we have a responsibility here. We, all of us, I particularly think not only all of us as individuals, but I think one of the primary tasks and responsibilities of the elders of our church, for which I'm very thankful for, that they are uh, given to protect us from those who will come in. In fact, I was talking to one of the elders just yesterday and he asked what I was going to be preaching on, and, and then he asked, he said, do you think we've ever had any false prophets in our midst over the time that we have served together? And I thought there for a minute, and I wanted to think, and I said, well, I do know that we've had some people over the time that we've been at the church here that wanted to bring a deviant doctrine in that we had to deal with. But, uh, and then we both almost at the same time came to the same conclusion. However, there was, and we actually had to deal with that man. He, he was not allowed to speak in the church. He could not even address. He was a very interesting person. I won't go into all of that. Why should I give credit to a false prophet? But, so they're there. So he's telling us. So let's go on in our, in our notes here in terms of, the, if there are false prophets, my wife worked in a bank much of the time that I was pursuing my education, for which I'm thankful that she was willing to work. I was getting my degree, and she was getting her uh, PhD put hubby through. (laughs) And she worked at the bank. And one of the things that, because she was a teller, and she did other things as well, but she was a teller, they wanted to acquaint her, you've heard this often, not so much with all of the variations of uh, counterfeit money, they just wanted them well acquainted with the authentic product. And if you know the authentic product, you'll recognize right away. And haven't you done that sometimes when you got some $20 bills and you think, whoa, I don't think, I wonder if this is counterfeit. And you do exactly as I do. I spend that as quickly as I can. (laughs) Get it out, you know. I I don't want to turn it in, I lose it. I just want to spend it, you know, so... And they probably thought, me, that was pastor gave me a counterfeit 20. So, so if we can know then, this helps. If we can know what a true prophet is, 
then it'll help us discern what a false prophet is. Now, we know that in the Old Testament, there are three offices that are given to us. There's a prophet and a priest and a king. And Jesus fulfills all three of those positions. He is the, as king, he is the ruler of all of his kingdom. Uh, The priest then served the role of speaking to God on behalf of the people. That was the role of the priest. The role of a prophet was to speak from God to the people. So here's the clear distinction of a true prophet. He's not advocating his own message. He's not promoting himself. In fact, if we look at uh, Ezekiel, there was no pride in any of his proclamation of what he had to do. There was a lot of embarrassing moments, but that's what God asked him to do, and he did it. It didn't bring a high profile for him, but it did bring the message of God that judgment was coming. So a true prophet, then, is one who is not self-appointed, but is solicited by God, and when he is drawn in to God, he bears the message of God. It is only the message of God. I'm going to give us some ways that we can discern that a little later here, but that's what a true prophet is. So if you're listening to someone and they are not advocating the message of God, which I believe is given to us in the Word of God. We call it that for reason, the Word of God. And if they never speak from the Word of God, the things of God, that should alert you. And if they begin to move off into something that is contrary to the Word of God, or is something that is added to the Word of God, those are areas that should should concern us. That's it. All right. So what is a false prophet then? A false prophet is uh, one who claims to be from God, but as I've suggested here, and here's your blanks there, they distort or disregard God's word, God's truth. They'll either... um, change its meaning there. And this is, we, we know that Satan himself quotes scripture in that whole debate about the temptation of Jesus. Satan was the one that says, it is written. And Jesus said, it is also written. And so it was a battle and the scriptures are often used in the process, but they'll distort or they'll just flat out disregard the word of God in that process. And another way that we can do this, determine that, is that a false prophet directs people away from the only source of salvation, that is Jesus Christ. You should be deeply concerned that in, if you're sitting listening to someone, and it has been a season of time in listening to that person, and you've never heard them talk about Jesus Christ... And you've never heard them talk about your sins and your desperate need for the finished work of Jesus Christ to be applied to your life in faith. If you've never heard them talk about that Jesus is the only way, uh, then you need to be concerned. I would be concerned. You know, if we had that beginning to take place at our church, which is not the case at all. By the way, isn't it great to have our pastor back, huh? It's good to have you back, you know. But, he, but we, we ensure that when we preach that it is not our opinion, it's not our imagination, 
It is, we can speak of the spirit of the prophets of old, thus saith the Lord. But if you don't hear us advocating Jesus, then you should be concerned. Because when we see in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, uh, after his resurrection, opened the eyes of them that did not understand who he was and showed that all the prophets, the poetic portion, the law, everything spoke of Jesus. It's impossible to call yourself a prophet of God, a messenger of God, and not have as your central theme the person of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. So get concerned if you've listened to someone. And let me tell you something. You may like them. They may have an appeal to you. you may, it may tickle your ear, as Paul says. It ha, it, and it kind of speaks to the inner part of your soul. And when you're done with that, you feel good. But they never talk about Jesus. Be concerned. Be concerned. All right. Some of you are richly encouraged. We're on point four. He warns us in this passage of Matthew 7, beware of false prophets. Again, that state of mental alertness that I can distinguish that. Now, one of the things that happens there is that they come, as he says here, uh, they come to you in sheep's clothing. Does it mean that they have a lamb skin there and they've got a, look like a sheep. It means that they're using the product of the sheep, the wool clothing there, and they're wrapping it. And it was very distinct, even in the time of Jesus, that you could see and know these, these people are shepherds. They came as if that they characterized themselves as people who care about the people of God. But it's not the case. So beware of these false prophets. And then if you'll turn with me, and he talks about them being uh, ravenous wolves. I, um, I think the most dreadful thing that I could ever think would happen to me on a hike by myself would, would, would be to encounter a pack of wolves. Everything that I've seen in movies, maybe it's dramatic to a degree, but it doesn't seem that way that um, that wolf is not concerned about my well-being. And it, and it delights in showing the teeth. And it's telling me I'm here for one reason, and that's you. <laughs> and you're my next meal. <laughs> so when he talks about this, it's a very descriptive term there that these people are deceptive, but they're destructive. Turn with me to John chapter, uh, just a few pages over in your Bible, to John chapter 10. And, and here we find this being spoken to us. Jesus contrasting a true shepherd and a false shepherd here clearly defines it for us. Beginning at verse 1, Jesus speaking here, parable of the good shepherd. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, 
he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of the strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had just said to them. So Jesus said to them, again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. There's that narrow gate again, that small way. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, he repeats. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. My, my, My goal for you is to find life and to find pleasure and enjoyment in that. Then he goes on in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. But here is this characterizing what the motive is behind. Now, if we look again at our opening illustration of Jim Jones, there in the last moment, as the light began to shine on the evil that was going on in Jonestown and the debauchery, the sexual debauchery that was going on and the de- breaking up of families and the absolute authoritarian mindset when all of that was going on and people were trying to get their children out and they couldn't do that. And so when all of this, we see finally a false shepherd manifesting his true colors when Under his authority and direction, over 900 people take their lives, including him taking his own life. That's destruction. Now, he promised them good, promised them care, but he actually brought forth great destruction. Now, you say, wow, how could anybody possibly do that? If you just flip back in your Bibles just a little bit here to John 8.44, here we find another expression given to us in regards to this. Jesus speaking him. Now speaking to the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders who were, by the way, in the context of what he's talking about, they were false shepherds. In this uh, Sermon on the Mount, they were being led astray, clearly defined in Matthew 23 when he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Talks about them making them the followers of them twice the sons of hell. So in this context here, he was also giving a direct message to the Pharisees, you're the false shepherds here. But here he says in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you wanted to do do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The destruction that falls in the path of a false prophet is because he is a follower of of their father, who is a liar and a murderer and a destroyer. That's what's going on. So when you begin to think about this, it may seem pretty innocent. You may like what's being said there, but at the end you realize, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not talking about Jesus. And if you don't step out of that quickly, you're sucked into that, and you'll find it very difficult to escape. Why would he warn me if it's simple? Why would Jesus say this if it's not the case? All right. Now, here's an, another thing. He says, when we be, uh, beware of false prophets, the amazing thing is, and this is what happened with, even with Jim Jones, he came out of the context of what we classify as evangelical or, you know, uh, Christianity in that. But, John, but uh, in Acts chapter 20, 
when uh, Paul is ready to leave the, the church there of Ephesus and all the leaders there, uh, there was a, a great weeping and sorrow in his departure and everything. But he said, I, I, I have to warn you about something. In Acts 25, we read, And now behold, I know that all of you, that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, Will no longer see me. My, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day: I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He's a true prophet. His, he pronounced the message of God upon them. Be on guard. There's the same language and spirit of what Jesus is saying. Be on guard for yourselves. You are in a place of potential danger here. And for all the flock, he's speaking to the elders of this. This is a clear definition of one of the responsibilities of eldering. And all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And here he speaks to shepherd the church of God. Huge responsibility, which he purchased with his own blood. Clear definition of salvation. I know that after my departure, savage, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will r- arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Again, the word is given, therefore be on the alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease admonishing each one of you with tears. And now, notice what he says, verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. He gives us some ways in which we ought to be employing our time and energy, and that is with the grace of God and with the word of grace that is with us. All right. So they can come, and this is how deceptive it is. We see also with the wheat and the tares, the illustration parable that Jesus gives is that the wheat and the tares grow in t- together. How do you distinguish them? And Jesus said, I'll, take the, I'll make that distinction there. So, you, you, you know, you may be sitting there and you think, you know, Mike, I think I'm pretty clever. And I think I've got pretty good insight. And, and I, think I, got, I, I think I could discern that right away. Maybe. I, I, I'm suggesting that's not the case. If, if that's that easy and that simple, why would he alert us? Why would Paul alert us? Why would Jesus alert us? All right. Fifth point here, how can you recognize false prophets? Now, he says in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruit. So, and, and you know, that's, that's easy, easily done. And he says, you're not going to get figs from thistles and, you know, it's just evident. I, I, I never go out to our little, um, our little uh, blueberry patch and expect to get an apple out there. I mean, it's just no, no, no indication that's the case. So he says, so he gives you, he says, they're simple. You will know them by their fruit. So God is saying that we ought to examine. That keeps with what he says about in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, that we have to be able to judge properly. We have to know how to judge. And so he's saying this. Well, let's look at some of the characteristics. In Jude, the only chapter there is in Jude, he speaks about this. He gives a couple of references here, but here he's talking about false prophets. He says in uh, verse 4 of Jude, For certain persons, 
speaking of what's going on of these false prophets, have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. It's really kind of interesting. God knows who they are and he knows their destiny. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Lord and Master, or Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The first way in which these false prophets will be able to be defined is that they deny Jesus. Now, he's telling us in the context of the early church, Jude writing there, that they'll deny Jesus. They, that they may not blatantly come out and say that Jesus is not who he said he was. They may not, but they'll begin, as we see there, they'll begin to replace him with themselves. They're the ones, and they'll talk about their accomplishments and who they are. And you'll fall in love with their charismatic nature and, and one of the things they suggest. Then they also distort the message of saving grace. We find that also in this verse. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. There's a subtlety of those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. God knows their end and destiny. Ungodly persons, that means they're not like God, but they're like, uh, they're, uh, like Satan, they're fo- the, the one they follow, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. <laughs> so, instead of the narrow way that we talked about last week of moving into a disciplined life in which we shed off the components of sin, they move in and they invite you to go the broad way and suggest that in fact Christianity in its narrow thinking is robbing you of something and this is, this is just more. And they give license to you under the category of grace for you to live under the flesh. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5. You know, be very careful that we don't turn this great gift that is given to us, this gift of love and, and, and grace and use it uh, the freedom that he's given to, and use it wrongly. So uh, when, when there is a message that is being advocated that is not talking about the crucifixion of self, denying your flesh, denying yourself, humility, if that's not it, and they elevate you and talk about how great you are and, 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 and what you can do. Now, you are great because of Jesus, but that's not the point that they're trying to raise there. They're trying to raise you up. They distort, really, the message of grace, and they rob it of its meaning. Can I look at just at another reference here? In Romans chapter 16, verse 17 to 20, they also promote self. That finally is where it comes, because that's what's driving their passing. L- listen as I read to you from Romans chapter 16. Now, I urge you, brethren, here's that same level of alertness, alarm. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. And hindrance contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. Now, the foundation of this is your point of reference is that there is a learning that you have that gives you the quality to make the judgment. For such men, he goes on in verse 18, for such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. It is all about them. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of, uh, of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. 
The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's our hope. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But here it is. They're driven by their own appetites. And as we see in the Jonestown, there was a sexual deviant man there that was uh, taking, breaking up homes, taking those multiple uh, partners that he birthed children through, trying to perpetuate his own line. That's a common characteristic. And sensuality and sexual sensuality is one of the ways that we see in um, Ephesians chapter 4. They've given themselves over to sensuality. The senses, what I like to eat, what I like to see, what I like to hear, they're driven by the animal instincts of their lives. They have no spiritual component in terms of who God is in that process. Well, let me press on here. And we know in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, that he talks about not loving the world nor the things of the world. These followers become lovers of the world and the things of the world. It's not uncommon to find great luxurious things amongst these people. That's not always across the board, but they want earthly pleasures. Now, I understand that. If they have not been anchored in God and the understanding of who God is, then they are like any other unbelieving person. They're trying to get as much out of this only life that they'll ever know in its fullness, at least in their definition, from this horizontal existence. But he tells you, don't look like it. Don't even go to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, all of those components there. And when you find them then pursuing that type of worldly things, be aware, be aware and be cautious. Point six, how can we protect the church from false prophets? Good thought. I like what uh, John tells us um, in Second John, only one chapter there. And he, he kind of gives us, it's, it's really hard to understand exactly what he means here. So let me try to give you understanding. Verse six to 11. And this love that we walk according to, that, and, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. There's what I said, denying Jesus. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourself. There's that alertness again, that you do not lose what, you have, what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes in, who, let me read that again. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both father and son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, now this is the part where it becomes confusing. What does he really want me to do here? Do not receive him into your house. Don't entertain it. Don't even think that you can... It says, do not, it says because there's a couple of things that happens here. And do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So what you do is, is that when you have that alert within you... I had one friend, one of the professors I had in seminary... And he took this verse literally, and when people would come that were of a cult and want to talk to him, he said, you know, I can't invite you in my house. And he had a chair sitting by his door there, and he'd take it out and sit it on the outside of the curb there. He said, I can talk to you here. 
But I don't want anybody to give implication that you belong in my house. So it's that guardedness that was there. So here we have it then. We have to be, uh, we, we simply, what does that mean? Stay away from false prophets. Just stay away from them. That's the first line of defense that we have there. Secondly, as he says in John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus praying there, and he talks about sanctify them. I've given them your word, and, your, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world so we can navigate this course that we're in, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Separate unto the truth of God. The more we know the authentic truth of God, the better we're able to discern this is not like God. This does not sound like God. And I've told you before in Sweet Home, Texas, the blind lady there that had people read to her over and over again the Scriptures. And sometimes when they were reading the Scriptures, they would kind of bumble it a little bit. and It didn't come across right. And she would say, just like you're reading a nursery rhyme to a child that has heard the story 500 times, and you're ready to tuck them in bed, and so you skip over part of them. They say, no, 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 Daddy. Not there. you got to go here. Remember this? Okay. Well, this is what she would do. She'd, whoa, that doesn't sound like my Jesus. Back up and read that to me again. And they'd back up, and they'd get it correct, and they'd say, oh, that's my Jesus now. Go on. That's what we have to be. We have to be so sensitive to understand that. And then finally, he says in Ephesians, having told everything that he wants us to do in life, he talks about the battle that's going to come to us about uh, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but it's spiritual forces that are worked there. He says, stand strong in the Lord. That means in every truth that he's given to us, stand firm. I am anchored in the armor of God because I am in a battle, and the battle is for truth. I am so thankful that we have shepherds, and we have pastoring shepherds, We have elders that are shepherds that care about what goes on. This has been the legacy of this church long before I ever got here. Grandpa Laux, one time there was a man that had visited the church, and this would be uh, Jasper Laux's father. And the man started preaching something that was contrary to the Word of God. Right in the middle of the message, Grandpa Laux walked down the aisle. You cannot preach that in this church. You're done. No more. 